0: Shio Nagad. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Lowell, and I'm host of the Origin Story podcast, where once a month I ask an artist I respect to introduce me to a piece of work or an artist they love. This month on the podcast, author and journalist Benji Carr introduces me to the dime-store Dostoevsky, Jim Thompson.
1: But the thing that I love about Jim Thompson books is that he's writing mostly anti-heroes. And they say some horribly repellent shit, and he knows that it's horribly repellent.
0: That was the voice of Benji Carr. Benji is an arts ATL editor-at-large who has contributed to the publication since 2019 and is a member of the American Theatre Critics Association, the Dramatists Guild, the Atlanta Press Club, and the Horror Writers Association. His writing has been featured in podcasts for iHeartMedia, on stage, as part of the Samuel French Off Off Broadway Short Play Festival, and online in The Guardian. His debut novel, Impacted, was published by The Story Plant. During the first half of our conversation, we talk about Benji's journalism, both as a feature writer and a theater critic. We also discuss his excellent debut novel, Impacted. There are a lot of gems in this conversation for the aspiring writer or artist. Benji is open and honest about his process and journey, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I'll be back in a little while for the second half of our conversation, where we discuss the mighty Jim Thompson. Benji Carr, how you doing? (laughs) I'm nervous. (laughs) Don't be nervous. It's all good. (laughs) How are you? I am good. I am good. Welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. Thanks for being on. This is
1: fantastic. How long has this been going on for now?
0: So, it's been going on for years with a big asterisk in that, you know, COVID didn't do a whole lot and it's changed formats. It originally was a long form interview podcast with just people I found kind of fascinating or interesting. Something about COVID and something about people's reaction to COVID and something about Trump and people's reaction to Trump <laughs> made me not enjoy people as much. And so I changed the format to where I'm asking people, you know, artists. Basically, the, you know, the tagline is "artists I respect." Introducing me the pieces of work or artists they love, um, and this has been very enjoyable so far. So we just started back last February. Yes, well, that's um, almost a year now. A radio personality, yeah. So this is uh, coming off, and I uh, also take some months off because scheduling in the summer is crazy. And as much as I enjoy being somewhat directed in the kind of the things that I'm consuming and really paying attention to. I also like to have, uh, you know, my own choice as well. So we'll do January, February, March, and April, May, and then take uh, June and July off. And then we take December off as well.
1: That made me a little bit reluctant in regard to um, assigning you anything, because I always knew that, like, in high school, I never read the assigned reading. I think I can confess that now. But... um, I like just because I'm very much a creature of mood and I was and I was afraid of of finding something that would potentially run counter to what your mood was. And yet at the same time, these are so like the books that we're going to be discussing are so quick and vicious and funny that like. I, I I I I thought I thought you'd appreciate. Um, it's it's a good day I, I,
0: fun. I definitely pre- appreciate it, but and I, and, and I want to talk a little bit about mood and how the works affected me, and uh, but also I I requested this assignment, so it's a little different True. than school. You know, I was asking, but I, I get the uh, the trepidation a little bit of like. And also, I haven't had anything that I've like really just has not been my taste thus far. But it's going to happen, and that's also fun. (laughs) That's also learning. That's also you know enjoyable in a different kind of way. So it'll happen eventually. But but you are not the first. I I'm. I could have
1: recommended Thomas Hardy. We could have been having an entirely different conversation about (laughs) Wes. But.
0: That would have been too. uh, Yeah, that would have been high school. Uh, uh, PTSD, and I probably wouldn't have read that.
1: Return of the Native (laughs) is a really good book. Never mind. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't really influence my work very much, but it's good anyway.
0: Yeah, there we go. Uh, So I have already introduced you uh, via you know, post-production, but I did want to ask you, you know, when you are meeting somebody new and they ask you inevitably, what do you do for a living or what are you into? Well, how do you respond? How would you describe it?
1: It depends on where we are. Um, Most of the time, I guess I would say that, uh, hi, I'm the theater critic for arts ATL or one of the theater critics for arts ATL. And, or now I'm an editor at large. I just got that promotion. Um,
0: I saw that. Congratulations!
1: Um, I also like in certain in certain areas. I, I I tell people that I'm a novelist, but sometimes it's, oh, oh, wait, hold on. So my mother, at a family funeral over the course of like two three weeks ago, decided to just all of a sudden introduce me as, this is my son he's written a book and he also had a play and the play was part of a, a competition and it went off off Broadway in Manhattan. And, and I'm like, oh, and he writes for the, he writes for the Atlanta journal constitution and, and arts ATL and all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> wait, you're proud of me. That's impressive. Like I didn't realize, I like, know it's, It's weird, like, when I was a kid, I was wanted to be, like, a writer for the living section of the AJC, and for the longest time in my career, I didn't think that I was ever actually going to get to be that, and now I am that?
0: How does that feel? Does it really?
1: They're, like, unearned, and yet I can't. I can't deny the fact that I did the work. Right. Like, and that I did all the preliminary work that would get me to the place that I'm at. It's just that, you know, when, when you lose jobs or, or you get laid off or, or something like that, it does, the fa- the path doesn't feel linear. So you end up, you end up being like, well, how did my, how did my eight years working as a bookstore clerk at Barnes and Noble help this? And it's like, well, I learned how to talk to everybody. And like when I was 16 and doing a street poll for, for the like weekly newspaper, like that very clearly taught me how to interview. And yet, you know, there are moments where you feel sidetracked or moments where you feel like I was an insurance agent. Jesus. And yet at the same time, again, you, you have to be able to ask people probing questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable, make, makes them feel at ease. And also you have to know what your own voice is. It's nice. And then also, you know, having a darker upbringing, You learn through storytelling, like how to communicate that. How did I meet you? Was it through On Stage Atlanta or something else?
0: I would say that or Right Club. One of those two, probably. Right Club on
1: the same night in like two thousand and eight.
0: This is back when the they were push, at what push. the there's a yes. brewery there now where they yes. were right but yeah it's
1: um what three rivers brew what's it called uh,
0: three, three taverns.
1: taverns yes but yes we were doing Rat Club on the same night and that's the same night that I got invited to do Carapace and and yes.
0: Well, let's talk about let's talk about Right Club a little bit and then the other live lit things that are in Atlanta oh, because wow. I do associate you with those, <laughs> uh, and I know the format of Right Club, which is you know seven minutes opposing sides, you know of an issue. Yeah, really. It takes can take a debate form, can not take a debate form, can be fiction, poetry, can be you know narrative, nonfiction, can just it be is. an essay, and yes. can be anything, but. Tell me about Carapace and maybe some of the others All that right, you're involved so
1: in. so Right Club, I the last time I did Right Club was in October. It was the first show back from the pandemic. And um, a lot of times when you're doing Right Club, which you know, um, what you try to do is try to figure out the reason you got the invitation and then deliver <laughs> deliver what it is that they asked for to an extent. So the last time that I did write club before this was after I'd been doing carapace and a show called naked city. Now carapace, it follows the moth format. It is, um, live stories told on stage five to seven minutes. Um, true from your life without notes. And there's a prompt and topic, but you have to get up on stage. Not completely unplanned, but they want moments of spontaneity, moments of discovery. And that is on the fourth Tuesday of every month at Manuel's Tavern. Um, I think it's still going. I think it's run by uh, Shannon Turner now. Um, But I, I, attended it regularly when it was run by a a writer named Randy Osborne, who's amazing. Um, And his wife, Joyce. Um, Let's see. Did you ever do carapace?
0: No, I haven't, I haven't been to Carapace. I haven't been because I think there's a couple of others that are, are running, but I don't know if they're right. still running. Naked City uh, happened at
1: one point. That used to be at the Goat Farm, but then Naked City ran for five years. But the person who runs Naked City or ran Naked City, Gina Rakiki, who is a tremendous actress and improviser and clown, um, is now doing a show at, Red light tavern called Joy Deficit, and That's I a great and name. And it was done, and that show is in response to the pandemic. Uh, she found that there was like an absence of joy just around her, and she wanted to bring in performers who would. Uplift and and concentrate on positivity, and so the first show was just last week, and it was gloriously amazing,
0: outstanding. What did you love well, about it?
1: There was a, there was a variety because it started with Scotty Rowell um, performing um, a song on his ukulele to accompany his own puppet show.
0: <laughs> well, that's about great.
1: about his first car. Um, a friend of mine named JVA uh started to do an essay that seemed to be about stickers, but then also dealt with um and how much they hate stickers, but then it transformed into something larger and more beautiful and dealt with um dealt with transition, transformation and coming to be who you are. It was stunning. And that like and there was a guitarist Stephen Williams at one point, I got up and interviewed the head of Red Light Cafe, which the head of Red Light Cafe oh, was that's not cool. necessarily expecting.
0: Oh, really? Nice.
1: And, like, at one point, someone got up and told Gina how much she meant to them. And at another point, Gina pulled someone up off the stage who just needed a pep talk and decided to, like, give them a pep talk about all the work that they've done and just how proud they should be of themselves. It was really beautiful.
0: That's outstanding. It sounds like people definitely left with more yes, joy.
1: Very much so.
0: That's that is very very cool. Uh let's talk a little bit about interviewing and your work with Arts ATL. Uh and if someone wants to be a better interviewer, uh do you have a, a tip for them because you've been doing this now and I'm sure it hasn't been a static process. Like, what have you learned along the way? What would you recommend for someone who wants to be better?
1: It requires a level of trust. It helps when possible if you have a sort of existing rapport or existing relationship. Like, you and I can talk like we just see each other every month or so, or that we've talked before or have grabbed Indian food, and so we just have a conversation, um, it also helps a great deal if the per, like, particularly if you're interviewing artists, if you talk to them about, about their work, it's an old, trick that you can learn from like Aaron Sorkin TV shows. If you talk to people who are passionate about their work and good at their jobs, they will talk endlessly about that. (laughs) And they will talk with energy and excitement. So if you're talking to someone about their new play that is going up, they are both nervous about it, but incredibly excited and they are, the default, like, subject matter expert about it. And additionally, what you want to do as well is understand that you're not just talking for yourself. What I mean by that is I try to ask, what is it that you want the audience to get from the work that you're doing? Because you yourself, I am an audience member, but I am not alone. And and certain people have different expectations than I do. But then also, try to let... Try to let the conversation direct itself in the areas that it's going to, so that it isn't just you with a list of questions and then you move back to the list of questions because then that suggests to an extent that you're not really listening i mean that people understand if there's necessary information that you want to gather but then they also right they also need to feel like what they're here like what they're saying to you is going to involve follow-up questions, that you are legitimately interested in what you're talking about and who you're talking to. And I know that sounds pretty basic, at least sounds kind of basic to me. It's just that it it helps a great deal. And and, uh, granted, I mean, art's Interviews and interviewing artists is vastly different than, like, strict journalism, where occasionally you're trying to gather information that people do not necessarily want to provide you. Um, but that also helps you recognize when someone's trying to evade something, and you can then be more directed in the way you ask the question. Which is often why if you're in a, like if you watch like uh the White House press corps, the same people ask the same question of the same person five different ways to try and get an answer that isn't just vague. But then also you have to realize that in certain cases, People aren't going to be vulnerable with you. They're going to answer it that way. And that is all you're going to get. And, and you have to be comfortable with that. And it helps as well that I'm not interviewing people live per se. What I do is I take the recording and then listen back to it later, which can't stand the sound of my own damn voice, but, Nonetheless, like <laughs> listening back to it later, you can get like it's print. So, like, I write print articles. So, so you can, you can decide the transitions and the segues in, in the, in, in the articles. And you can also allow the article to carry on the momentum of the voice of the people that you're interviewing
0: that's cool okay will you take me through like because i i don't know and i'm sure i'm curious about it i'm sure others are as well like how does like will you take me through the process of like who tells you says hey this is uh this act is coming to town or this play is going to oh, open you up know how this you know we want to go talk made. about it i do oh, this I is,
1: do. oh oh come on you've directed shows before you must know some of this
0: mm, i know <laughs> nothing
1: that is not true Anyway, all right, so what happens is um, we either find out that the show is happening. Um, I, I've been around Atlanta and the Atlanta theater scene and people through Wright Club and and Lit Shows for about, like, I, I was taking dad's garage classes in 2006. And... Um, and as a result of that, like, people just sort of know me at this point, And social media has made it easier to just reach out. Um, and but then so traditionally, what will happen is a theater has its season of shows that it announces months in advance. And they have a marketing department, ideally, that will then contact my editor. Her name is Denise. She's wonderful. Um, and Denise will assign out the stories to our team of writers. However, because I know the community and because I know a lot of People oftentimes people will reach out to me about a show that they have coming up, or or a project, or an angle, and then I go and I pitch it to Denise or to Shane at the AJC, something like that. And um, there are also moments, and these are the ones that are more experimental. Um, that are actually, I don't know. They're just fun for me. I get to do like one of them a year where I try to find a common thread over a number of shows that are returning that we tried to, that we've covered before, like Christmas shows, like Christmas shows. You get the Alliance that does like Christmas Carol every year and Shakespeare Tavern that does Christmas Carol every year. And Dad's Garage that does Invasion Christmas Carol every year. And so you have to find some new angle to approach all of this existing material in a way that makes it fresh in the minds of the readers. And so one year I was like, hey... It was during the pandemic. I was like, "Hey, let's get all of the Scrooges and all of the Christmas carols together in a conversation, like a Hollywood Reporter roundtable, and just get them to talk to one another." And that is one of my favorite stories ever. Even though,
0: That's even though awesome. The
1: actors, I fairly, uh, I'm fairly certain the actors thought I was I was pretty simplistic, because you have to ask a question that applies to all of them. But the thing is also is that when it's an improv show, you can't review it because no one's ever going to be able to see the show that you saw ever again. That is the nature of improv. You can give a basic idea of what you saw that once, but it doesn't tell anybody what they can expect when they go and buy a ticket. So you have to find some way to preview or interview now, a lot of people don't like doing that. Um,
0: um, a, lot of, a lot of the journalists don't uh, like doing that, or no, a lot of the actors no, don't like doing that? a lot of critics,
1: um, a lot of past okay. Atlanta theater critics <laughs> does not do interviews. And so it benefits you to be flexible.
0: Well, I'm so I'm curious, though, when you've um... – Like your prep work before, let's say, let's say it's a feature piece. And so you're going there to interview them. What will they have sent you a press release? Will you, I mean, you have a lot of institutional knowledge and a lot of, you know, a lot of the people involved, Uh, but let's say you don't know as much in this case. Like what, what does your prep look like? How do you organize that? And then how do you interview?
1: (laughs) Um, It depends on the show. If if it's the Alliance and it's the Water for Elephants musical and you're interviewing Jessica, I forget what her last name was, Jessica and Isabel, who are the director and the star of it, but they are New York talent. Like, Like Jessica had just directed Kimberly Akimbo before doing this. And... Then you do what you can to try and prep information because they are not local. They do not know you. They do not know your reputation. If I'm talking to somebody who, like, you know, I've known for nine years, <laughs> like like interviewing people, Topher Payne. I'll say his name so that that way it's the actual name. Yes, from interviewing Topher Payne about his shows, then you know, like I've I, I've seen him dressed as Julia Sugarbaker with shoulder pads and a dress before. <laughs> we have a like we have a way of talking to one another already,
0: but a different vibe.
1: Yes, but the thing is is that just if even if you haven't met someone else before, you can still develop that kind of rapport with them because you are still you and how comfortable you are with how you talk to people. If you let them know what it is like what your method is, then it can work. Um but occasionally also It just benefits you to be kind and humane, and to and to have enthusiasm for it, or to let them know, to let them know where you're coming from. Like, I interviewed a director I'd never met before over Christmas at, um, in regard to, um, White Christmas at city springs and and that person and i geeked out over the movie so much and also talked about just our love of musical theater and our way in like everyone's enthusiastic particularly if they willingly talking to you about a feature
0: right
1: art is passion creatively applied. And so all you have to do is find out like, and tap into what drives them and what makes them passionate. So that even, even if someone is like assigned to direct something, they have an approach, they have their mind's eye and dare I say it, everyone even I have an ego, and um, it helps. I feel like I'm being vaguely insulting to people, and I don't want to be.
0: I don't think you are. I don't think you're being insulting I just get at all. Really vague, vague, or specific. I just get
1: really excited about the opportunity to talk to people, and I love finding out what they love about what they're doing.
0: That's very cool. That sounds right up this podcast alley, actually. Um, uh, so uh, about how many words I, uh, you know, was it column space? Do people say column space? It used space, to girl? be inches. Uh, okay. Ayo. Mean, Ayo. Is our features. No, no, no. no Ayo, Ayo, not you. <laughs> Ayo. Um, wait.
1: So at this point, at this point, I don't know. Because I write for the website, and since I write for the website, websites don't have, like, a word count limit, generally. I mean, granted, we have a partnership with the AJC wherein they um, run our pieces, but I've been doing this since I was 16 years old, and I can pretty much guess... Like, I mean, at this point, I guess that you're writing what I would consider to be, like, most of my reviews, I would say are about 12 inches. Um, If I'm writing a longer feature, then it's about uh, 15 inches, which I guess would be like a section and a jump
0: what does the uh, editing process look like with your editor Um, or is how extensive is that? Is that
1: all right? My editor, Howard, who now works at the AJC, um, Howard would receive my articles, um, offer notes back. Um, Howard would write, would write the headline and, um, and then we would, like if there was anything that needed clarifying or anything that needed to be uh, like anything that didn't make sense to him, then uh, we would work it out uh, through emails or conversation. Um, I'm very analog. I still like talking to people on the phone. Um, But I also text constantly. Um and so Denise and I follow pretty much that same method um I I I try to be a pretty clean writer so that I don't require much editing I still get to be a bit redundant and sometimes my um Sometimes my pronouns need modification, but such. But there hasn't been an issue with transitions or flow in regard of, in regard to um, one topic to another. But I'm pretty studied in that at this point. like I, I know the inverted pyramid style and such.
0: I don't know that. What is what is the inverted, inverted pyramid style? Inverted
1: pyramid style is the old style of journalism when things used to be um, – when, when news from the Civil War was broadcast over telegraph wire and transmitted back and th- they would use like I think a teletype machine to be able to print out everything and you didn't know whether or not the wire was ever going to be cut by enemy forces – So as a result of that, what you would do is you would write the most important information first, like an encapsulation of everything necessary to know, and then the second and third paragraphs are always like – Details that elaborate upon it, and then quotes, and then further details elaborate on it until the most extraneous and yet still relevant information is at the bottom, so that your most important stuff is at the top and then it builds down to the smallest. So it's like that's fascinating so building an inverted pyramid,
0: yeah. And so part of our, like, newspaper history or reporting of events style came from, yes, you, like, a, like uh, just a practical necessity of, like, oh, my God, our military, they're going to cut yes. the wires.
1: No, that's seriously, if you look at newspapers, even now, they will summarize what something is, and then they will follow up and follow up and follow up. So that's why when you're writing reviews, you start with, is this good? What is the?" And then what is this about? And if you're doing interviews, very rarely do you start with a quote. Instead, you start with, this is the title of the show. This is where it's running. This is when it's running until, and this is what I thought of it.
0: That's really, really cool. Can we talk a little bit about, speaking of reviews, Okay. Okay what your headspace is in or are you, are you as you go into a piece of theater or film or whatever you're reviewing are, are you trying to get yourself into like a neutral space are you are you obviously you can't throw away who you are your point of view your opinions that's that's what makes you know you interesting to read but what is what is there any am i on the right track at all when you go into a show or are you just or is it something else
1: When you walk in, I mean, you already have a program or you have an idea of what you're walking into. Um, You know who's in it. Um, But oftentimes, you walk in and the very first thing you see is the set. And this just happened this weekend with a show called Need that I watched at the Aurora. And I was with a friend of mine who was in theater. And so he and I um, kept bouncing back and forth about what we were noticing that was on the set. And and on my Instagram, I always take a picture of the set first because you don't take pictures during the show. But this one was different. and, And I've seen a number of shows that are like this. In this one, it was a one-woman show where a woman is narrating her actual life story while making her mother's bread recipe with an actual stove on stage. That's and she's cool. making the dough as you walk in the room. And there are shows like the theater troupe Vernal and Seer or, or or things like that where where there are where they intentionally have moments going on on stage already before before you even get started and so then you get the you get the question of like what have i missed like what like i can't look away and it creates this urgency to it and you just start to have to wonder what it is that you're looking at. And now I don't take notes as readily as I used to. Um, But like in 2019, when I was just getting back into it, I would try and write down everything that you're, you're seeing me mime this, but other people try to write down everything (laughs) that you're looking at and everything that you know and everything that you remember so that you'll have like, not so that you'll have expectations, but so that you'll be able to describe it later, so that the audience will get an idea of what to expect from you, while also then trying not to spoil anything, or which I have done. Um,
0: Ooh, uh, that had to feel that had to feel terrible. I'm sure. That was it unintentional, oh, or well,
1: there or, was a show called Tony Stone that had incredibly clever lighting that Tony Stone was, was um, about a professional female baseball player from the 1950s and, and how she had to deal with racism and how she had to deal with a lot of sexism. And at one point, In one of the most stunning moments of theater that I've ever seen. They used the actual baseball stadium lights that were on the stage. To shine a light on the audience and accuse them of accuse them or, or require them to view themselves in a way that examines their own privilege, their own racism, their own, like the things that brought them there. And, and it was such a profound moment that I wanted to describe it because I'd never seen anything like it. And then later someone told me, that that moment would have been better if they had been able to keep it as a surprise. And I'm like, wait, that's okay, such a so fine again, line. You and- want to say what's different and what's profound and what's important, but then you don't want to ruin the profundity for someone else. And so now it's it's interesting.
0: Yeah, do you err on the side of of less I now try because to of that, on or the are side you still less?
1: I'm I'm not. Upset over what I did with the Tony Stone review because, as because also that has one of my best leads ever.
0: Define a lead for the first
1: sentence of a news story. Um, yeah, like the very first sentence or the very first paragraph of the news story, the thing that gets you.
0: Um, do you remember the uh, just? I'll link, I can link to it in the show notes. Yes,
1: yes, I will never forget that.
0: Outstanding, what'd you oh, get? Oh,
1: well, it's a baseball show. Run, don't walk to see Tony Stone at, at, at the Lions <laughs> Theater. <laughs> Just like, it was outstanding, great. And, and,
0: and they used it in
1: all their promo material, which was ridiculous. I'm still not used to that. <laughs> I'm still not used to writing ad copy unintentionally, but sometimes they need to manage uh, that for other people.
0: Let's... Talk about that oh because, gosh. yeah, as a reviewer, you know that's going to happen. Is that something that is just in the subconscious? Do you let it get to the conscious? Because, you know, you've done theater. You, we, you know, producers need that that great quote. If, uh, if how I, do you, oh what do you God, do with that?
1: Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Oh God. Ugh. <laughs> if I like something, And if it isn't glib and if I can make it work to be succinct and direct, I do. Well, because it also is just, it helps to deal with the liveliness in the reading of the pieces. Like I'm I would I would like to say that I'm not writing blurbs and yet at the same time I am aware that sometimes what I am going to be writing will be made into blurbs I try not to write toward the blurbs unless it's something that I really 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 like that I believe deserves to get butts and seats and then I'll 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 pepper them into, into <laughs> yeah. pieces ooh that sounds so gross
0: it doesn't sound gross I don't see how you could possibly it mean there's no way you could pretend to be unaware of of, yeah, of what happened
1: then it like, but then I'm not trying to promote me. I'm not trying to be like, oh, if I write this down, then they'll put it in there and it'll be useful. No, like what I'm trying to do is what I'm trying to do is to be in favor of Atlanta and the Atlanta artists and the Atlanta theater community that needs our support and is filled with creative people who are trying their damn best. And the audiences who are just looking for something that will engage them, entertain them, inform them, make them feel. And so occasionally if you have to write. In a catchphrase sort of way. I hope that that's forgivable.
0: I hope. Yeah, I feel like it is. Have you had a oh, but then uh, there
1: are moments where it's just like, oh hell no, that's not what I meant.
0: Well, that's what I was yeah. wondering. What's the most creative oh, use of ellipsis oh, you've oh, seen oh, to, oh, oh, to oh. kind of redirect what you've said um, or written? Surely that's happened, right? I like the, I didn't.
1: The the one that I the one that I No one's ever intentionally misrepresented me. Okay. In a way where they made a negative sound like a positive. No one's done that. Thank God. But, um, <laughs> but there have been moments where my enthusiasm was tempered and they replaced it with um, exclamation points. And, yeah, oh. and I don't write with exclamation points on purpose. And I do not write in first person on purpose. And so it's weird. It's 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 really weird when all of a sudden your like measured and considered analysis of, of of a piece of theater then becomes essentially. A sixth grade girl's yearbook signing, like it's like like, all of a sudden it was just like loved it! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! And you're like, and instead the thing that you said was like, I rather loved it when this moment happens. Just all of a sudden it's just loved it, And, and and you can't. I mean, you can blame the theater, but you can also understand. That they're just trying to to right. anyway.
0: <laughs> I, I, I like not
1: being an ad writer. Um, but I, I also like I also like knowing my voice and knowing and knowing like what my writing should sound like to me. Because I always think that. I always think that I write the way I talk and I don't know if that's some, like, I think that that's something that I practiced to be able to do because I'm not a particularly ornate writer. Like, like imagery I'm capable of it, but I mean, when I was writing a novel, my novel is like very, very directly stated and blunt and a lot of people find that very, very funny. But then you go back and you'll read something like Thomas Hardy, where he describes a field, or or, or John Steinbeck, where that you know turtle crosses the road for six pages. Um, I, I'm a newspaper writer. I, I write. I write like I'm a newspaper writer. I. I. I I'm. Plain folks, in a way.
0: Let's talk about Impacted, which is your debut novel, published in 2021, and it is friggin' fantastic. You gave it
1: four stars Uh, out of five. It is not friggin' fantastic if you gave it four stars out of five. Clearly, there is something. I mean, no, I love it. I appreciate the four stars out of five, and I appreciate you calling it fantastic. And yet, at the same time, if you want to say that it was pretty good, you can't.
0: I will call it fantastic, and I will stand by. First of all, my review was anonymous, so I don't no, know what it you're talking wasn't. about. It said Second, it. it was you. No, no, I did not. I intentionally oh. did not. Oh God. Thirdly, it was my wife's uh, Amazon account wait, uh, oh, that God. I was leaving no, it on, no. so I wouldn't have done that, I anyways. But what I did put is, I read this novel for show prep, so it was it yes. was obvious well, it, that that it you, you would know. You would know. You I I, I wanted you to know that I, I had reviewed
1: know. it. No, I I but. God, do I sound like an ungrateful bastard? I'm not trying to. <laughs> Only a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful for anyone who reads my book and and, and I'm also aware that, that, that I write in a pulpy style that is not like a masterpiece. So if you compare me against every book that you've ever read, then it is a four-star book.
0: Well, I felt well that, and that is kind of that's. Yes. I mean, this is you know not not about my own personal reviewing system, but that is it, kind of what I do. It, like, there's got to, There's there's, there's you an know echelon. There's, there's
1: standards. There's, yes.
0: But I saw I saw today when I was doing some more prep for this that you know, several of our mutual acquaintances or friends, you know, their names are on there and there's like five stars. And I'm like, wow. Oh,
1: Some shit, of them five are. Five stars. are <laughs> like, but a lot of that is just a lot of that is just familiarity bias. And, and right. I'm fine with it. I love the ones who don't know me who write like three stars. Um, One time. No, I can't tell that story. That's terrible.
0: Okay. One all right time, right. gave all right. me a one-star uh,
1: review, and then I met them.
0: Oh, and shit.
1: I made it awkward.
0: <laughs> Did well, you
1: really? Because the thing sorry? is, there uh, and like other people are like, you really shouldn't have said that to him when he reviewed something. He reviewed it like not expecting to have to answer for it, and I'm like. <laughs> but I'm a critic and people ask me why I s- said what I said all the time. And so I don't I don't get why I can't ask like f- the way I said it was you you're the guy who gave the only one star review of my book to uh, on on Goodreads and um and I'm sorry that I wrote something that you didn't like. I didn't mean to give you a bad experience.
0: Oh my god, that's great! You—that's so thick. I love that.
1: (laughs) In front of about twelve
0: people. (laughs) Shit.
1: And I I was—was
0: it just quiet? Were they mortified? What did the what did the person do?
1: I I I should be ashamed of myself.
0: (laughs) Clearly, totally ashamed, totally ashamed. Um, so I I take it you do read reviews. Do you read Goodreads? Uh, Is it? Passing interest—is it going to affect like how you write? Like, what is it? Just curiosity? Or? No
1: author should read good reads of their own book. Every author does. <laughs> no one does. Okay, I've, no I've heard no both one of those. Should. Everyone does. Everyone regrets it because you can disqualify That makes a everything. lot of sense. You can disqualify the negative reviews in your head, you can disqualify the positive reviews in your head. You you can read a 4-star yeah. review by someone who you know and be like, "Oh, I guess he didn't love it." <laughs> to the point where <laughs> then you to the point where you then critique him when he tries to tell everyone in the world <laughs> that it's terrific.
0: Oh, wait a second. I know how this person feels now. I'm that person now. <laughs> it doesn't feel so bad. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. Um uh, tell me where the idea came from, when it came from. I'm going to ask a bunch of in the weeds detailed questions. Answer them if you want to. If you don't, you don't have to, obviously. But when did the idea first come to you? And did you know it was a book?
1: I did not know it was a book. I wanted to like my friend Jessica Nettles, who's also a novelist. Um My friend Jessica Nettles and I knew that our friend Brian Panowich uh, had found an agent because he wrote for a website that was a flash fiction website called Shotgun Honey. Flash fiction means that it's um, very quick fiction that uh, is written in in under 500 words or so or a 1,000. So... It is a flash fiction crime and mystery website, Shotgun Honey. And so she and I had challenged each other to write very, very brief fiction. And I'm like, okay, what can I write? And I was like, well, wait, what if I write a story about a woman who has an affair with a dentist? Like, even though she's married. And then like beats the dentist to death or something. And I'm like, okay, maybe I could write that. Well, how do I wait? No, damn it. No, I can't write that. I have no experience in my life of being a 30 something woman who's married. I've never been married. I've never been a woman. I've, I've been 30, but that's not my experience. That's not something that I can write to. What? What? How can I make this a voice that I am comfortable writing in? Like, what have I been before? And I'm like. What if it's a guy? Wait, but what if he still has like kids? Wait. What? How do I how do I make that happen? And I'm like, wait. Wait, 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 wait. All right. So, like there's insecurity and like there's other aspects of it, but what like voice would I be familiar in cuz I don't know crime well enough to like understand how to go about plotting a crime if I were to try and if I were to try and commit a crime, I would be a complete bonehead about it. How do I make that work? And then I remembered that I'd read, like, The Big Sleep, and which is, I believe, Dashel Is that Raymond Chandler? Raymond Chandler. I
0: think it's Ch- I think Raymond Sleep Chandler. Raymond
1: Chandler, thank you. Yes. I think. I was reading a lot of pulp crime novels, which we will get to. I was reading a lot of pulp crime novels, and I was like... Wait a second. Alright, so the Big Sleep has like this like teenage floozy who's exploited by a photographer and then like accidentally kills him and has to go on the run. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. All right. I know what it's like to have been a teenage boy who's thoroughly confused. I know what it's like to have been a survivor of abuse who blames himself perpetually for everything that has gone wrong as though as though it's all your fault. Um and What if I make it so that all of these things are true? Is that still believable in any way? Like, it's ridiculous. But is it possible to be a teenager, a teenage boy, confused about his sexuality, who also has a baby, and is also having an affair with a dentist, and if that is true, then what else is true? And what do I know about teenage pregnancy? Um. Well, I remember a member of my family. Um, that when she was pregnant, uh, she and her boyfriend got married, even though they were like sixteen or seventeen, and her father finished their basement and had her move into the basement as, as like an apartment so that that way they could keep an eye on their child while keeping, keeping an eye also on their child's child. And that all of this happened in my small hometown of Buford. And when you realized when I realized as I was writing it, cause I was writing cliffhanger to cliffhanger to cliffhanger and sending it out to like two or three people over email. When I realized that it was really interesting if all of those details were true about one person and that even if it's outlandish, it isn't impossible and that it defines a whole lot. And so that you then for the reader parse out those details over five chapters or so so that the true depth and the effect of what they're reading isn't immediately clear to them and then also because you try to be as propulsive as possible by writing as many cliffhangers as possible Someone's in the middle of it before they realize the extent of the mess of a narrative that they're in.
0: Now, were you aware of this in first draft stage, or did this is this something in revision that you found going cliffhanger, cliffhanger? How, oh. what does your first draft look compared to draft 10 or 11 oh. or? Uh, and that we talk a little bit about You're that probably, process. You probably read
1: my third or fourth draft. Um, the thing was, was that when I was in high school, I wrote a soap opera and I wrote a soap opera for one person. And basically I would just hand her a chapter and her, her name is Vicki. The book is dedicated to her. Uh, I would just hand her a chapter and she would and I would let her know and we would sort of plot out what would happen next or like who it would happen to. And so I wrote that first chapter. And it ends with, it ends with a murder of sorts. It ends with a murder. And like a thoroughly confused, bumbling person like myself has committed this murder that is, absurd and ridiculous and he just runs away from it and brings the weapon with him. And then I was like, okay, well then the next chapter two is going to be him arriving at his house. Right? And then I'm like, wait, can I get to the house yet? I don't think that I... Oh my God, I forgot for him to pick up the phone. What do I do? Oh God, I have to write it. Can I, is that clumsy to write a scene where he has to turn around the car and go get his phone? And then wait, hold on. What else is true? Once he gets the phone, then what could cause even more of like well what is the next cliffhanger what is the next roadblock and you're like wait the dentist was on the phone the dentist was on the phone with a furniture company about delivering something well, what if that delivery arrived what would the characters say if the delivery's arriving and there's a body in the next do- in the next room how do you get out of that And so you essentially just sort of create problems for your people and you don't make them smart about them. You make them dumb because anybody who's going through a tremendous emergency very rarely has like the ability to hold themselves together. And my character Wade is an idiot floozy and I love him.
0: (laughs) He's pretty lovable.
1: And I also wanted to write like a, a mystery novel where, where the detective never really shows up. Although there is a variation on the detective who kind of shows up. And I'm like, but then they're going to be in school the whole time. I'm like, how do they get them out of school? I'm like, okay. And then I created a solution that got them out of school. And a lot of it is like, what happened next? And the way in which I tried to write was to keep myself in suspense so that that way I would want to know what the answers were. Or I tried to have like a list of like, like I had three readers. You're like, you're writing for two or three people so that that way you keep them entertained. So that even if the book doesn't go anywhere, once you realize that it's a book, you're essentially just keeping Was that
0: audience. first draft? What? Were you more pantser or plotter, or it sounds like a little oh, bit in between? Don't ask that you're...
1: damn question.
0: It's already asked, buddy. All right. <laughs> People want no, to know.
1: Don't.
0: Oh, they do. They do. No, 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 he no, 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 no. I can totally explain this. Yeah, I was. Um,
1: I was the head of. I'm sorry. I was the president of of a nonprofit organization called the Broadleaf Writers Association and we would host um, writing workshops in the fall every year where we would gather together a whole bunch of writers. And every year, someone always pitched a pantser versus plotter panel. And (laughs) I didn't want anyone who is interested in writing to feel like they had a way of disqualifying themselves if they didn't do something exactly the same way that an accomplished writer that they know did it. I don't want anybody. Oh, interesting. You know, you know that somebody in their head is like, I don't belong. I don't belong. I am an imposter. I am an imposter. And then they'll hear How Stephen King does it, and if that's not the way they did it, they were like, "Well, I guess I'm just crap." Well, but the thing is, that's the thing is though, is that the proper answer is whatever works. So there were times. Well,
0: I'm not asking. I'm not asking the question. What should someone do? I'm asking how you approached it, and so, and I hear what you're saying, but I would counter with there are many different answers to that question, many different right. hybrids of that question. So in, and again, I'm not a, for a panel for this right. necessarily, but if there were a panel and there's eight authors on there and you hear eight different answers or variations, and rather than being exclusive and somebody saying, well, I don't do it. Like, you know, they are liable to see someone who might be doing it the way they are so that they know that there's many different ways.
1: It's entirely too limiting to make it a binary. Um,
0: that's very true.
1: <clears throat> I heard someone who gave a really good answer and I'm not going, I, I don't remember what the answer was, but it was essentially a way of avoiding the question. Um, but also they dealt like, they spoke to the fact that that like certain anomalies will spark you so that sometimes you know where you're going to. And other times You won't. You'll be surprised. Sometimes your characters will literally tell you, based upon their own logic, what they would actually do versus what you wanted them to do or what you think they will do. Like the end of my book, one of my characters doesn't tell someone something because it doesn't make sense for them to say so. But and and keeping the person that they're telling in suspense is like this entirely vicious thing. But it just wasn't logical for them to say it. Um, and since you've read the book, um, you I can tell you off the phone what that or off offline what that moment was, or you might have the question, but um.
0: Yeah, let's keep I wanna I don't wanna spoil yeah, well, your but there, I wanna talk about your book, but I don't wanna I don't wanna spoil end. Well,
1: and then th- there's also something else that I can bring up to you, which is that like not only did like you and I have talked about how we want to write books, and I talked to you as this was coming about. Like you and I had met and had Indian food to discuss the possibility of writing a novel and determining exactly what will spark us, what will start. And and I was brainstorming ideas for this Flash Fiction podcast, or sort of this Flash Fiction website. And all of a sudden I got this sentence in my head. And I wrote it down like it was actually just a phrase. It was, you can't unfuck the dentist. <laughs> just a
0: great like,
1: because, and then it's like, wait, hold on. Because she couldn't unfuck her dentist, because he couldn't unfuck his dentist or reverse his Prius down the road to hell that he'd been traveling for six months or three months. And then that, like, I'm like, wait, hold on. Unfuck the dentist. That's going on the first page. Maybe it should be the first sentence. No, it's not the first sentence, but it's the, it's, it's there on the first page. And it always makes people laugh, but, (laughs)
0: <laughs> well i'm glad i asked that question because otherwise i wouldn't have gotten all those nuggets thank you for that what, are you what a great question about? i asked <laughs> no the panther that was, started with the diatribe on what a stupid question well, it was it's
1: not a stupid, not a stupid <laughs> question i just i just don't want anyone to use it as a way of disqualifying themselves from from trying or doing the work there is no right way to do
0: this i love that that's exactly right amen 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 uh tell me a little bit about the path to publication because writing a book is hard as shit and hard to do well and you did that but a lot of books don't ever get published so how was your path to publication what was that process like for you
1: As I mentioned, I, um, was at for a time the president of the Broadleaf Writers Association, uh, which was founded by another author named, another author named Zach Steele, whom I've known for 22 years at this point. And Zach would bring in agents and publishers to our conference every year. And I would get in the habit, well, because, of the, because I was on the board, I got to meet everyone anyway, but I got in the habit of scheduling pitch meetings with them, whether I had something or not, because I wanted to be someone who wrote a book.
0: So, what did you do in a pitch meeting where you did not have anything? What did you say? Well, everybody
1: always has ideas, and so um, what you're doing is you would want, ideally, the opportunity to, to present yourself as someone creative with a voice who is worth knowing, and if you have writing or if you have a first page like come up with just like a uh pitch first page or first chapter or something like some project that's in your drawer you know go in there and see if that is something and when it got when it got to the point like impacted is my first book it is not my first try Dear God, it's not my first try, um, and by then my publisher already had known me for years. Um, he had some idea of the work that I was capable of, and when I when I had impacted. Uh, Broadleaf has this thing called the uh, first pages panel, where people anonymously submit um, the first page of their manuscript, and it gets critiqued on stage by all of the ed- by all of the editors, all of the agents, all of the publishers, and I knew. I knew that I had unfucked the dentist in the middle of it there. And so all of the ed, like all of the agents are reading through it and they get to that sentence and I see one of the agents circle it six times. <laughs> but because. Because the head of the panel is reading it out loud, like Elena Huff Tucker was the head of the panel. She read it out loud, and she was also one of the people who was one of my beta readers, so she knew what it was. And I just hoped that people would get it, or enjoy it, or be appalled by it, or something. Because even if you're infuriating somebody, they aren't putting the book down. And, um, even if you're grossing someone out, if it's quick enough, they won't put the book down and, or the story down. Um, so when I, so Lou and John, who I was pitching to, uh, at the story plant and the fiction studio, when I pitched to Lou, Lou was already familiar with me and Lou had already heard the first page. And they're like, and, and, and they're like, so how much of this do you have? And that was September of 20. 19 September of 2019. And I had been writing Regularly in a Dunkin' Donuts at night since January. And I knew that if I wrote like 150 words a day, that by that within a year, you will have 50,000, 55,000 words. I had 55,000 words, but by the time I pitched it to them, I'm like, it's getting close to being finished. And so I'll probably finish it in, in December, but I didn't. Um, I'll probably finish it in December. Um, would you like to see it? And they're like, hell yes, of course, because they they liked me. And um, so when you're pitching a book, you just, or like, I don't know, you're building community. It's the same thing. Everywhere. Like, if you want to get on stage at Wright Club, get to know all the people, or just become part of the community and become supportive of others so that you aren't just in your own head all the time, or beating yourself up, or like second guessing your own ability. Like, try and encourage other voices if you're going to lit shows, don't go alone, particularly if they draw names from a hat, because it gets you out of your own head as well to be a fan of somebody else and to be there for somebody else's moment so that you're not so hung up on your own achievements at any given point. Not that you're not doing the work, but that you're not just for yourself. And, um, and so by the time I pitched my book to the people who bought my book, like they knew me. Now, granted that's not the way traditionally that you're going to go into a pitch meeting or you're going to pitch a book. I mean, I, I I never tried to pitch to a larger publisher or anything of that sort because I love my publisher, but also I'm, I mean, you know what the book is about. And I pitched to an editor. I'm sorry. I pitched to an agent who told me that no one would ever publish this in a million years, unless you change very, very, very key things about the narrative. And I'm like, But that's what the book is about. (laughs)
0: That's what I wanted to write.
1: No, I'm like, no, no, no. Like. My book is a Trojan horse. As I said, it takes five chapters before you realize exactly what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. It is very important. Not I'm sorry, my book is not very important, but like the topic that we're discussing and the way we're discussing it is very important. And no one knowingly is going to go into this if it's there on the book jacket and they have an excuse to to put it down and go to something else. So I wrote a book that deals with. sexual abuse because I am a survivor of sexual abuse and sexual abuse survivors are everywhere and they need to know that they aren't alone but it's an unpleasant topic that most people are not willing to discuss but the more that we don't discuss it the more the stigma that is surrounded with it the the more that the, the stigma that surrounds it continues and as that stigma continues then more abusers can use it to shame people into silence so we talk about it we talk about it out loud we bring it to people's attention. We let people know that it causes complicated feelings. That, it, like, that even though there is a clear villain and a clear hero in my book, the hero in my book blames himself more than he blames his abuser. Because he also says, like, how could I be a victim when I made choices? But then the book also goes and plainly states why. And it also creates an atmosphere that allows him to survive. And if I had to wrap that up in in a genre in order to be able to address something like that like the more that i re- the more that i planned it when i went from when i went from writing a very 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 brief fla- flash fiction about a woman who's married who has an affair with a dentist when i realized the extent of everything and when i realized that i was saying it to myself That I was writing a book that I wish that I had had, even though it's very tacky Um, and blunt. But like when I realized that I was writing that book, then then I didn't care. Uh, I'm sorry. That's not true um that i was willing to hide all of the details of the depth of it until like five chapters in because when we are younger we still want to act like we are adults We still want to believe that we are responsible for everything that happens to us and that we're driving it. And and when I realized that I could make that work, but also make it suspenseful, and also make it true and complicated, then... then I, I just forged ahead. I mean, I didn't have a publisher when I was writing it. I wasn't writing it for an audience. I was just writing it to keep three or four of my friends entertained. And and I'm really proud of it because, because the ones who get it, like the ones who, who read it and get it, have been receptive and, and kind and, and I could have chosen to try and do something simple, but my own, my own brain and my own heart wouldn't let me. And then you realize that while you're writing a book that you're processing through feelings that you haven't dealt with. So you create like you create for your characters a more nurturing environment than the environment that you grew up in. You, you grew up with all of these secrets. So you create an environment wherein all of, wherein the secrets have to come out and wherein people heal sooner and learn lessons faster. And this, I do the same thing in my storytelling live on stage if I'm going to talk about abuse or or disability, I'm disabled, um, abuse or disability or something, you let people know that, that, that empathy is, is, expected of the audience and that that is the greatest thing that theater and storytelling can do. It takes, it takes these people who are not like us, these characters who are from outer space or thoroughly unfamiliar. And then all of a sudden, shows us like I've never been disabled before, but I know what it's like to feel sick or I know what it's like to feel like the room isn't designed for me or that this isn't a place that I belong and that they've made it difficult for me to walk in. Um, you, you may not have, and I hope that I hope that people have you, know, you may not have been through an abuse or an assault before but you know what it's like for something to go wrong that is beyond your control and you blame yourself for it um and it just connects us all anyway
0: thank but- you, Vinji what? For sharing that. I didn't do anything. But, but just thank oh. you. Uh, why don't we take a little break, and when we come back, let's talk about Jim oh, Thompson. Oh, wow. Yes. So who was Jim Thompson? Well, Wikipedia tells me that James Meyer Thompson, born in 1906 and deceased in 1977, was an American prose writer and screenwriter known for his hard-boiled crime fiction. Thompson wrote more than 30 novels, the majority of which were original paperback publications published from the late 1940s to the mid-1950s. Despite some positive critical notice, he was little recognized in his lifetime, and only after his death did Thompson's literary stature grow. In the late 1980s, several of his novels were republished in the Black Lizard series of rediscovered crime fiction. His best regarded works include The Killer Inside Me, which we discuss— Savage Night, A Hell of a Woman, and Population 1280, which we also mentioned. In these works, Thompson turned the derided crime genre into literature and art, featuring unreliable narrators, odd structure, and the quasi-surrealistic inner narratives of the last thoughts of his dying or dead characters. Uh, Yeah, that's about right. A number of Thompson's books were adapted as popular films, including The Getaway, Twice, and The Grifters, which I have not seen, but people just love that movie. Uh, The writer R.V. Casill has suggested that of all crime fiction, Thompson's was the rawest and the most harrowing, that neither Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler ever wrote a book within miles of Thompson. Similarly, Stephen King has said he most admires Thompson's work because the guy was over the top. The guy was absolutely over the top. Big Jim didn't know the meaning of the word stop. There are three brave lets inherent in the foregoing. He let himself see everything. He let himself write it down. Then he let himself publish it. Uh I thoroughly enjoyed Thompson's works with with a, a caveat or two, we'll discuss at the end. Uh in the meantime, please enjoy the second half of our conversation with Benji Carr as he introduces me to the prolific Jim Thompson. Um I guess my f- first question for you is with regarding Jim Thompson, is when did you find him? How did you find them? Who? Uh, I don't know. Who was who your I, Benji car for me? Or I did you a, just find them on your I own? Was
1: a, I've been a movie fan all of my life, but ever since I was 14, like it was my key hobby. Like I was putting posters up in my room. Like, cutting pictures out of magazines, putting them on my wall. Um, And at one point I think that I had like the cutout ads for after dark, my suite and the grifters up on my wall, but I didn't see the grifters until I was in college. And, but I remember when like, the getaway after dark, my sweet and the grifters were all in theaters. And I also, I also realized somewhere along the way that like dime store pulp was a really good, effective voice. Like, because particularly if you're like a fan of film noir, um, like you want that like detective who's sexist and 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 blunt and using 1940s language, but but you know grandfathering in the fact that it was written in the 1940s, so that even though the standards by which we would judge it now are different than those were the heroes. But the thing that I love about Jim Thompson books is that he's writing mostly anti-heroes and they say some horribly repellent shit and he knows that it's horribly repellent. He knows that the characters are vile. And he finds in some cases humanity in it or humor but at no point does he try to be redemptive and and it's like gross in the most compelling way and then you'll read something like population 1280 and the killer inside me. Where the, where, uh, pardon me for saying this, where shit is just fucked up. Like,
0: yeah.
1: like <laughs> fucked up. And you're like, wait, why Completely. am I reading this? What in the hell? And yet what, what is going to happen to this person? Are, are they, what is, who, this person is a cop, a police officer, and and then and then it's like, wait a second, wait a second. Jim Thompson knew in the forties that police officers could be, you know, capable of getting away with the most.
0: It's uh, so many times uh, during uh, the 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 couple that I read, and then half of yes, another which one. Which ones did you read? Uh, I'll, so I read uh, the Grifters, and I read the uh, the Killer Inside Me, and I've got about halfway through The Getaway, and was enjoying that. And may finish. All right, that so
1: today. I am halfway through The Grifters, but I've seen the movie. I read After okay. Dark, my sweet, which I will get it confused with the Postman Always Rings Twice, which is not by Jim Thompson. And then also, I have read. Population twelve eighty, which is fucking nuts, and then the killer inside me, which is like stunning, and ugh. But like, yeah, but but I don't mean that in an and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just
0: no. It's talking about like the the. the, the uh, being prescient or whatever, he's, he's talking about his times, but it's there's it, it something vile and misogynistic and terrible you would never like. Standards have changed so dramatically, and then like right next to that will be a comment or a line that is completely like, "Oh, that is exactly how things are yes. now." Right next to each other, and it's so and compelling, it's seedy
1: and fun, and you also find yourself in a way, rooting for people or sympathizing with people that you don't want to know. And the ability to do that as a writer is enviable. Like, I I wrote some short Mm. stories for this uh, website called The 500, and, and I would write about like, I would write about horrible people and people are like, why would, why would you do that? I'm like, because, because if I want to hook someone with 500 words, where I get them to relate to someone that they don't want to know, then that is an accomplishment. It means that I'm working on my voice in a way that makes my voice compelling and makes, it want, makes you want to stick around in spite of yourself. And so with my book, even though I'm not writing about a character who's entirely repellent, he does do some stupid, selfish, mean, terrible stuff And it's all about a topic that people don't necessarily want to willingly travel into. But Thompson taught me that it's possible to make it impossible to put down even even when it's people that, you know, that good people would not want to spend time with. And in fact, that's kind of the the fun of it and and this is going to sound terrible but it occasionally will appeal to your inner asshole not by giving you permission but by letting you know again in as with all storytelling that sometimes the goal is to just let people know that they're not alone
0: completely uh i found my mood affected by uh by these works, in a way that I might not have had permission to be an asshole, but I found myself definitely being uh, less less kind and gentle than I would like to be. Uh, my wife noticed it, and I was like, "I don't know what's wrong with me lately. I really don't." And I was like, "Holy shit! I wonder if it's this because I am being just like a cerbic little dick right now." I wonder if this is, and honestly, I think it is. I oh. think it has something to either, either I'm using that as an excuse, uh, and I'm still going to go with that, or I honestly think it's, it's a little bit like being in his worlds. And again, I've only based on the limited ones I have, and but still, it seems to be a yeah. general thing that he's known for. It is, it is uh, compelling. It is dark. It is uh, looking for the angle. It is. Ultra violent in a compelling way. Like he goes there. There's no pulling of punches. Like there, there are lines that I read that I was like, "Holy shit!" He just said that in 1952, or you know, like even whatever it was, 1940s. Or yes,
1: but there's the other thing that we're not admitting, which is that it's really, really funny.
0: It's so funny. So many lines are funny. So many situations are funny.
1: uh, Like I was in the middle of the chapter of the grifters just now where Myra like seduces her landlord who does not want to be seduced. (laughs) And And he's like this kind of sweaty, gross man. And she's like this beautiful, beautiful person. And she keeps getting this like menu item stuck in her head. And it's like, Hothouse tomato smothered with sli- with generous slice of cheese, and it's like, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs>
0: yep, I love I love to, uh, him describing him like. Looking at the dresser and like trying not to look at her legs, but yes. looking, let's like, just but can't have it. Just more and just gradually, he's. Right. Oh no! Yeah, you're in, buddy. You're in. It's it's over. You can't. You're not and gonna then, win like, this.
1: Like even like the thing is is that it, like in Population twelve eighty and the Killer Inside Me, like it's it's a sheriff who is completely depraved, who has lived in a town forever, who is plotting like fourteen people against each other. All so that he can win. And and then in like in Killer Inside Me in Population 1280, you think that at some point someone's going to draw an ethical line and not be completely evil. But 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 good lord. Good lord, the things that oh Killer Inside Me, I mean it's that's in the title, but the stuff he does to that woman. Oh my God. And yet, and yet it's uh, not asking us to, to, it's not asking us to condone him. It's asking us to try and understand a sick mind.
0: Yeah, he's one of the first <laughs> uh, sociopaths, uh, you know, that I think we've we see like in American literature, as uh, according to all the oh, critics I read. Really? Yeah, and it talks about the sheriff and population 1280, is the twelve eighty also. Which is great by he the way, almost. Basically being the same, a lot of being the same character. So I, have, I haven't read 1280, but it, it sounds like a little bit distinctive difference plot-wise in that in 1280 he's he's pitting people against each yes. other.
1: Well, there's a little bit of that in Killer Inside Me as well, because doesn't he, like, use fights that other people are having and squabbles that other people are having in order to be able to kill someone and pin it on someone else so that they could never say anything and then kill that person so that that person's there yeah, and
0: There's an aspect...
1: The fuck is happening? Like, are they going (laughs) to kill everybody? And the answer? I don't want to stop anyone from reading. Gotta try.
0: Yeah. um, I loved the description of the killer inside me of uh, sickness. I love that it is brought about by this woman. I love that it is then explained in a way that is not heavy handed. It is not uh, like, hey, here's this exposition. It is just well done. We get to see his psychological trauma. Uh, Again, nobody's asking anyone to condone anything. It doesn't excuse it. But you kind of understand where he's coming from. It
1: doesn't excuse it, and it doesn't forgive it, and it doesn't try to redeem him, but... It lets you know that the world creates people like this by doing this, and it's not simple cause and effect either. It's like and and so, take Lolita. Have you read Lolita?
0: Not a long time right. but I have.
1: Lolita is not a guidebook in any way and yet some people are like how could you read something like that when it's about what it's about and it isn't and roger ebert always says that it's not what a movie is about it's how it's about it so
0: oh that's a great so
1: if So, the thing to remember in regard to Lolita is that there's a framing device wherein a psychologist is explaining that he's found this manuscript that is like that will give insight into the mind of a perverse, sick bastard. And that framing device is key because. Otherwise, it would seem to elevate this person objectively as a hero, whereas subjectively, in their mind, they are able to excuse what they do, or they are able to say, Oh, everybody does this, so I can do it too. Like, or, or, or that there's some illness that we all have. Like, and, and then it also gets that moment where if someone gives themselves permission in a in a particularly heated situation that they are capable of something truly terrible and then in my book someone's in a heated argument and thinks that they've done something truly terrible and and I'm going to ask you as a reader like did you see hints of the books that you read later the thompson books did you see what like where some of it like because i don't want to say that it's in the voice but like it's kind of in the voice and it's a little in the design although my character is not monstrous there is a character who is monstrous but and i do even give him kind of an explanation but
0: yeah which uh, that in, in that is one of the ways that i notice similarities uh is that there was is, there is never just a um a blanket evil without something behind yes. it you know you get a, you get a little bit again not a justification because, not because in,
1: there's still choice for these characters in spite of their circumstances, just as there's choice for all of us in spite of or because of our circumstances.
0: I meant to the, ask this in the last section because uh, Jim Thompson does this so effectively uh, uh, with the killer inside me, certainly. And I believe the grifters also, yeah, the grifters also, I think, are both first person. Had you Did you play with first person at all in Impacted or no?
1: Um I thought about it, but then I also want, because I started with that sentence of unfuck the dentist, which he can't say. He can only think. I knew that there had to be something outside of the situation watching it so that made it all not first person. And then first person can be really, really, really difficult when you need the character. Well, when you need the audience to know something that the character doesn't know yet. So you'll notice in impacted yeah. that there is a moment. Cause I realized that like the same thing with like that seasons of 24 on TV, like there are going to be moments where you're going to have to either knock someone out to have them go to sleep so that other stuff can happen and you're not trapped in this one voice forever or this one head forever. Um, granted, the way that I did get rid of Wade for a bit was a little bit 17-year-old boy. But anyway...
0: <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: anyway,
0: I know of what yes. you speak. <laughs> yes, you
1: know, plant the seeds. Never mind. Uh,
0: <laughs> Heyo. Uh, speaking of uh, of point of view, though, I just r- r- realized also there is a chapter at the end, towards the end of um, the Killer Inside Me, that goes to second person. Oh, and I thought it was really effective, and I was completely surprised by it. Who? uh but you i think it who it, is. it totally worked it's talking to the reader it's it's him setting oh, wow. up the uh the the house at towards the end i've not read uh, maybe years. the last second oh. to last chapter and it just kind of it just kind of works it's kind of cool especially because he is so losing it um oh. it was i it was it was surprising and i but i just loved it and that's the thing is this is like a pulp yes. novel but like it is artistic as hell it is literary it is interesting he's trying yeah, things it
1: is experimental um, sick and delicious it's like
0: just yes
1: i'm so glad that you liked it and yet i still feel like i deserve uh, sorry i'm so glad that you liked it and yet i still feel like i should send your wife a card but
0: yeah <laughs> yeah it, um <laughs> It really is. There's moments. There are moments that are just so experimental, and and uh, like the use of onomatopoeia is when just some of the oh. fight scenes is amazing, and and just the slipping in of um, of information, and I, some of it was on on audiobook. Yeah. I was just so impressed with interrupting a standard prose description sentence within either an onomatopoeia or an action that was so strong. Like right back to back with no transition, just like we do in real life, just how we think and act. Um, I was really, really, I really loved that a lot.
1: There's a moment in the Grifters movie that as I was reading it, I thought it had to be in the book too. And I don't believe it was.
0: I was going to ask you about this because I have not seen the movie yet. I I wonder how faithful it is.
1: The movie is set in the '90s, but all the characters still talk like they're in the '50s. It's just that every now oh, that's and then, interesting. well, and you you spoke, you said that like you couldn't see John Cusack as the character. They make it kind of John cusack and and it was, and so it was, um, John Cusack who didn't get an Oscar nomination. Annette Bening who got her first Oscar nomination as Myra Langtree and Lily was played by Angelica Houston. And I swear to you that I thought that this was going to be in the book, but there is a moment where Myra and Lily meet each other in the hospital. And Myra kind of teases Lily and says, Oh, I do see it now. You know, at first I didn't believe it, but looking at you closely, you are old enough to be Ray's mother.
0: I think that and is. And the then book.
1: Lily says back, "Aren't we all?" <laughs> and I like, just saw so it in delicious. the book. It was then like it, it wasn't in the part of the book that I read. Is that in the book?
0: I think it's in the book. I don't know if we see that in scene or if we just see that like in a retelling. Myra
1: gets that momentary flashback, but it doesn't have the aren't we all. The aren't we, like,
0: Yeah, I don't remember that oh specifically. Gosh.
1: And then, and then someone so. asked me on a panel once, like, what is your favorite murder weapon of all time? And I'm like, oh, it's in the Grifters. And they're like, what's the murder weapon? And I'm like... A glass of water, and they're like,
0: <laughs>
1: "I'm like a glass of water in a briefcase," and they're like, "How does a glass of water kill somebody?"
0: I was really wondering if the movie would have that oh. same same. S- oh, that goes there. I love God. that. God, re- respect.
1: It was just well because you have to have that. Like at the same time, it's like. Oh, my God. And like, that's like, so mine, I, my book, not that I am Jim Thompson, I am not Jim Thompson. But my book has the absurd murder weapon (laughs) that I was just like, wait, what is something ridiculous you could use to kill somebody? Or like, what is something that is twisted and delicious that you could use to, like, kind of kill somebody. And at one point I was trying to create this death scene in the book. And Vicky's mother was a nurse. And so I asked her, I'm like, "Well, wait, hold on. If 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 they ever had to kill somebody in a hospital, like and it was untraceable. Not that you would ever do this, ma'am, but <laughs> but what would you do? And so we thought she would be like, you know, air bubble in, in an IV or something or something like that. The thing that Vicky's mother said and the way in which it was so, she's like, well, It's what, it's what I ended up using in the book. And then as I'm writing it, I realized that there's this ironic twist in it that, that like, that like aspects of dentistry and aspects of this murder weapon have this absurd sort of simpatico thing. I'm not giving it away. You know what it is. But like, we were like, holy crap, this is amazing. <laughs> and we were also then incredibly scared of Vicky's mother.
0: But, <laughs> Very wary from yes. now on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the side characters, supporting characters in The Killer Inside Me and oh, The sure, Grifters. Sure, sure. And Impacted as well, because I think that is one of the joys of your novel is... These very distinctive, interesting—I um, would say—extreme, and they and they are extremely different from each other, but all grounded and all believable. And that's these novels had that as well, yes. and they add so much richness and depth to the journey yes. that um, I, I, w- I was imagining that had to be something you were you were conscious of and, and working towards. I.
1: In regard to my own characters, you just try to give everyone their own voice and their own quirkiness. Um, in regard to my book um, with Trevor, the the delivery man. Um, sorry.
0: Yeah, dopey. All right.
1: In regard to my own book with Trevor, the delivery man, um, I wanted to create someone generally cheerful, but also a little bit weird. And I basically had him go through his own series. Like I basically set it up so that he has his own history of trauma, but that he's reacted to it in an entirely different way than the way I would have. And I think that I accidentally created my dream boyfriend. Yeah, nice. I've never met anyone in the world like that. But um
0: But he does not come across as manic pixie not boyfriend.
1: Necessarily, because like there is an impulsiveness to him. Plus, he also needed to seem a little bit suspicious. And like, so occasionally if you've ever had a crush that, that you get a little too obsessed with right at the beginning. Uh, and it leads you to do some like thoroughly silly or stupid things. Even if you mean (laughs) well, like that's, that's what he ends up doing. And, um, And then Celeste is my kind of detective character. She's like this one who knows what's going on. But then she also is a little bit complicit and a little bit Mm, villainous and then tries to redeem herself. But then you have to try and figure out a way to explain why someone would be self-involved and then realize to an extent that that isn't the direction they want to go in. And in the Thompson novels, the primary character is always the most self-involved, but he's not the only one. And then the idiots are still trying to get away with something. And then the ones who are supposed to be dark and bitter still, trust someone a little too much
0: yeah i i love in the grifters and i'm trying to think if there's a parallel scene with the killer inside me how although you have again these incredibly strong protagonist anti-heroes and we're following their journey almost the entire time we also get chapters and scenes where they're not involved at all and it I thought it was an interesting choice and I'm not sure that because it's, it's you know, the, the, the stories certainly in the grifters. There's not, it's not, um, it's not really an ensemble piece, but there are these really strong characters that get their own scenes. They yes. may not get, they get like one, you give them one good, strong, incredible scene or scenes, but they don't get like five, like an, an ensemble piece kind of would. Uh, but it adds so much uh, layering and so much point of view. And then their actions later make so much more sense and you buy it, even though how they're so extreme.
1: In a screenplay, um, like if if you like Robert Altman movies where there are 25 characters and essentially you're following for a little while one of them, if only for a little bit, um, you get you get an outside perspective on your main characters who don't know not to trust them and can also provide physical descriptions of them that they wouldn't know themselves. And it gives you an outside observer and occasionally it gives you, like, the point of view of a chump. And... And one of the worst questions that you could ever ask yourself in general is what is the worst thing that someone could ever say about me that is true? Hmm. Like who is this person who has a thoroughly bad impression of me that is nonetheless thoroughly accurate. And even though that is not who I am in my heart and in my soul, their perspective is not necessarily untrue. And if you're willing to ask yourself that, then it kind of opens up doors. I mean, again, that's another aspect of empathy, but it's also an aspect of writing where you're like, when was I a dick? Is there anything that I could say that would explain it? And would the person be willing to listen to me? What are ways in which I've failed someone else? Um, And like, and is it a good story? Even if, even if it, it, even if I don't look great in it or even if it, tells something that I don't want known. Like, so like the, one of the chapters I just finished in the grifters was the, the Carol in the cafeteria. Uh, Carol's the nurse who's mostly sweet and, and she's not really in the movie very much at all. I don't think she's in the movie at all, but like,
0: Uh, I was wondering about that.
1: So she might be in one scene or so, But like, you feel like sometimes that he just puts it in there because there has to be one nice person. There has to be one person who's not in on it. And. And then also the fact that different people carry different information. Like, cause even Carol carries a bit of information that is important like to the point that I'm at like Lily hires her and Lily doesn't want Roy to know like that she's a mark essentially and that everything that he thinks he's choosing is actually chosen for him and designed. Um. It's like setting up 18 dominoes at once all to go in one specific design. It's nice. And then you create a character like my character, Celeste, where she seems like she's one thing and then she seems like she's another. And then you try to create a chapter that will explain why she is the way she is. And in mine, I end up mentioning like, old reruns of Cagney and Lacey and, and it worked for people.
0: It worked. It worked. Uh, I loved uh, our kind of little good hearted character of Sheriff Bob in the killer inside me. And I, I, I felt for him so much in his, uh, disillusionment we don't really get to see directly as he doesn't talk about it necessarily but you feel it it's in his actions it's there are scenes when um the protagonist just does these horrible things and i found myself like oh don't don't let sheriff bob find out you know i don't want him to know what a terrible person oh, that right. is you know he sheriff is. He, Bob's i was who... so worried about that I, you know, I just I you don't want someone I to was be shattered. worried about his reputation. You don't What's want that?
1: someone's good good nature to be shattered.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, it was such a weird emotion to feel, but I was like totally, totally like, God damn it! Don't do this! Like, don't do that to him. Oh, oh, and yet
1: Thompson. Thompson either is more than willing to, but look at how he's playing the audience, too, when he when he does that. He knows that there he knows how you're gonna feel. And he uses it to keep you hooked, and then uses it against you to an extent. Mm-hmm. And and what does it tell us about the world that he that Thompson was in and what does it tell us about the good guy decent characters who who survive or want to survive but are not entirely intact at the end like what is what do we do in a world full of monsters? We try not to be, but we can't be unaware of the monsters. We can't pretend that they don't exist because that means that we'll be unsafe.
0: And nor can we pretend that our society is, is set up as just, nor can we pretend that the power dynamics are equitable that the that the that the good people have the power i love how just forthright he is about you know running a town and people just dealing with it as best they can and it's a fact of life and uh again it's, it doesn't feel um it doesn't feel dated at all <laughs> it feels way too uh prevalent and way to what we're going through and, and dealing with now. Yep. Um uh,
1: they're assholes and sometimes the assholes win. And sometimes people believe that everyone acts that way and other times people need to think that so that they can get away with being assholes themselves. Yeah. And it creates yeah, a yeah, giant yeah. rooting interest and an entire cult of people who gather behind the asshole to do what he wants done
0: yeah i also really enjoyed the um the self-awareness of the protagonist but also the self-delusion or what seems like self-awareness at certain points and then you you're later you're realizing that and again, you don't know whether to believe this or not, or his new analysis, right. whether it's correct or not either, but you get to see how positive he is of one thing. I'm thinking of, you know, in the uh, The, the devil, killer inside me. The killer inside me. Uh, I'm thinking of of him worrying about the women turning on him uh, and how logically it would make sense. Like, okay, I can't leave her alone. She can't live because she knows too yeah. much and she would do this. And they're supported in the scenes. You see scenes where you're like, well, shit, I don't know that you can trust her you do have to kill her and then later you hear him go like well you no know, maybe I you know, maybe I, I really misread didn't. that yeah
1: I just, yeah like oh sorry she's dead like, just like <laughs> and, the, and the sense the sense that this motherfucker believes that he's more entitled to anything than any of the people that he's killing pardon my language
0: uh, dope! I like I like that language. Um, oh, then you must have really of...
1: loved Jim Thompson. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I also loved at the end of the Killer Inside Me, where he is. It's a it's poetic as hell. Uh, his like you know, it's almost like a uh, a diatribe for for the people who have been wronged, and he includes like the people he's killed. And then he just includes himself also. Like people like us, uh, you know, he's like, and it's great if you don't know who's saying it.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Yes.
0: It's like, this one's for those of us who have been trampled and blah, 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 or whatever, whatever it is. And you're like,
1: you were the one trampling. He's he's not checking under his own. But isolated. is so, it's so great. Um, I wrote a story once about, it was called La Petite Mort. And it was set in the 80s in Gwinnett County at a beauty pageant at the, at the fairground. And I created a character who is the worst person I have ever created <laughs> in my life. And I tried to make him sympathetic in a way but he at one point tries to confide in the audience and get the audience on his side in the story like he's essentially talking about himself and his point of view as if, as if he's just doing what anybody would do when he is disgusting and it's so familiar. <laughs> It's wrong and so familiar because that's how we, that's how we give ourselves permission to do bad stuff when we do.
0: Yeah. But is the world
1: good or bad? And if the world is indifferent and the universe is indifferent, I forget who said this even if the universe is indifferent, isn't it a comfort that we are not? I like that. I think that that actually might be Roger Ebert again. I think that I just quote movie reviews all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Clearly an influence. Yes. And somebody I'm a fan of. Yes. Uh, So I started, obviously, with uh, The Grifters and uh, The Killer Inside Me and The Getaway. But... Uh, And I feel like if I was going to recommend where somebody starts, I would probably say the grifters. Uh, What would, what would you tell somebody who, who is, who is intrigued and wants to dive in? uh, I realize
1: I recommended it to you and um, uh, that I recommended Thompson to you and that I didn't necessarily give you a starting point. Um, Population 1280 is glorious. And yet, it is so similar to the killer inside me at this point that sometimes I can't tell the difference between the two.
0: In the forward to Population uh, twelve eighty, it uh, so they that talks about that. Like this is the, his greatest character. Yes, he loves his character so much he wrote him twice. <laughs> you oh, know, and 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 the killer inside yes, me it, as well. It's
1: essentially a sociopathic police officer who is in charge of everything in a small town and and seems heroic to everyone in the outside world who turned a blind eye to all of the awful stuff that he does and and I would give the edge to Population Twelve Eighty, and I think they might be making it into a movie now. Hmm. But I did not refresh my memory for the for the sake of this podcast, and I was trying to look up what the difference was because I don't want to talk about one book and mean the other.
0: Right. One of the things I liked about The Killer Inside Me is one of the uh, I forgot the guy's name. It's a great name. Something Ford, right? Yes. Lou Ford. Uh, One of the things that is great about him and his shtick and that he's worked being in this town forever that he's essentially trapped in psychologically is that he is the he's the guy with the cliches. He's just the kind of the not too bright guy who's nice, not too nice, but he will sit in uh, one of the first scenes he talks about torturing the person he's talking to. Torturing them with his banality, with his bullshit cliches, with his like, "How's the weather going?" kind of speeches, and you could see the other guy trying to get out of the conversation. It reminded me of like the energy vampire and <laughs> what we do in the shadows. And and he says, like, he goes, "Man, that was fun. Almost as fun as like attacking them the other way or something." This is in the beginning, so it's just like a hint of like the violence to come, but that he is getting as much. Almost as much pleasure out of that attack, which is this attack of, hey, hey there, you know, busy day oh, in the office, you know, that kind yes. of shit. When he's just v- fucking versus with the people. thing, and the prose does that a little oh. bit too. I, I could not. Uh, I, obviously, that was an, intentional. with some of it, you know, like I was creating that mood and atmosphere with us, the uh, the reader, until. Until he breaks it, and he breaks it, breaks it hard to be and dramatically and wonderfully
1: to be charming enough and compelling enough to get the reader on your side and then screw the reader over to let them know what they actually like what they've actually signed on for.
0: Exactly. Well, Benji, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I think we should wrap it up here. Uh, thank you for being. I might have more, but maybe we'll do a round two. We're two hours and 25 minutes into it. So thank you so much for, for doing this. And uh, thank you for being a part of my origin story with Jim Thompson. I will always think of you <laughs> anytime I see him. And I'm excited you about that.
1: You should more. It's really, really something.
0: I'm going to. I'm going to give my little uh, little soul and heart a little little rest, a little cleansing bath of something very uh, popcorny popcorny <laughs> before uh, or very, very uh, bubblegum. Uh, to recover, but uh, I will dive back in very, very Excellent. soon. Uh, in fact, I'll probably, I'm probably i going to finish the getaway tonight. You know, I just got to I got to get that and see and see and how I that will goes. finish
1: the Grifters, and I'm going to text you.
0: Outstanding, I love it. Uh, any? Uh, will you let people know where they can find you? Where they want to know about your writings and your plays and um, things like that? Where where's your see, hub so on the web? At if this you have point, one? I
1: would say that the best thing to do is to read artsatl.org uh, to find my reviews um, or you could go to the AJC. Um, I do have a website, Car.com where you can get my book um, or you can buy locally um, at Eagle Eye Books or, um, or you can go to one of the big box stores and uh, order it online. Uh, at this point it's, Fairly cheap, but um, yes, those are all of the places.
0: Outstanding. Benji Carr, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. This was very fun for me. Thank you for doing thank you, it.
1: Michael Henry Harris. Thank you.
0: We will talk soon. Bye-bye. Big thanks to Benji Carr for appearing on the podcast and for being a part of my origin story with Jim Thompson. I'm now a fan, but I'm not sure I'd recommend reading his work back to back to back. It definitely can infect you. In the future, I think I will hop into his world and then hop back out rather than immersing myself. I think I might be happier in my family, too. Uh, Did you know that I have a newsletter? Well, I do. And in it, I preview our future guests and their recommendations. I highlight some cool books, shows, and movies that I'm interacting with outside the podcast, and from time to time, give updates on other projects. You can subscribe at michaelowl.substack.com, and I hope you will. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Daindago hoi, until we meet again.